BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Wednesday, November 15th, 2023. Uh, I have a whole list of things I want to discuss with my distinguished guest, and I think you can all guess who he is, but I'm going to have him introduce himself in a little while. But I'm going to throw this curveball at him. I just finished reading about it before we went on the show today. Speaker relies on Democrats to avert crisis. Uh, so, uh, amidst, uh, the carnage that's going on in the world, the, uh, Democrats and Republicans have temporarily reached an accord in Congress on a, uh, it's not even a full budget. It's just sort of suspending the shutdown of government. This is what we're at now in Congress. Uh, so we were facing, uh, a government shutdown in the next few weeks or so days. I've lost track of time. Uh, so they've averted that to like January or February with a temporary agreement, uh, puts off to tomorrow, what we can't do today type thing. Uh, and, uh, Mike Johnson, the new speaker got, got a vote of 330, 336 to 95, easily clearing the two thirds threshold required for practice for the passage. It is so convoluted, ladies and gentlemen. Well, it's convoluted anywhere. Like the, so simple majorities, if you want to suspend rules and, and, and vote in a special way, simple majorities don't work. So you got to get super majorities. Uh, and in the end, he got 209 Democrats and 127 Republicans to pass the bill. 93 Republicans opposed it, as did two Democrats. I wonder who those two were. I have to look that up later. Uh, and uh, so 93 Republicans are so mad. They're like, let's go down with the ship. Let's take the country down. <laughs> That's what's good for us. <laughs> just, no airplanes. Let's close it down. So what? I don't know what. We could fire some IRS agents. Is that the ultimate plan? Guys are lunatics. All right. Without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself, give a few comments on uh, Mike Johnson's uh, stewardship, and then away we'll go with other stuff. Take it away, distinguished guest. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. I'm David Ferris, uh, Associate Professor of Political Science at Roosevelt University, the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, and columnist at Slate and Newsweek. Um, Mike Johnson. Okay. So Mike Johnson, just 
you know, folded like a pack of cheap cards, like we all <laughs> knew that he would. Um, and uh, I, so I've got an elaborate metaphor here that I want to share with you. Okay. Um, and it's like this. Uh, before you have kids, you witness other people's parenting and you're like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, you witness other parents like bribing their children with dessert and, um, you know, uh, basically letting children run roughshod over the family uh, culinary choices, you know, like people stuffing their kids full of chicken McNuggets and mozzarella sticks and like just, you know, trash, kid trash. Um, and before you have kids, you go over somebody's house with kids and you're like, good Lord, like, how, how can you live like this? You know, like I'm, my kids are going to eat what I cook, right? My kids are going to eat what I cook. I would never do that. They're going to eat exactly what I cook. They're going to eat, you know, pasta primavera and, uh, and kale and, uh, <laughs> kale. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, grilled fish, um, and you think you, you just think you know everything because effectively in that situation, you're out of power, right? And the people with children are in power. They're the ones that have to make the calls um, and keep their children alive without losing their mind. Um, and you complain and complain, like, it's, this is what I'm going to do different. Like, this is what I'm going to do different. I'm going to let my children do this. And then you have kids. Um, and you realize um, that children have to eat chicken McNuggets, you know, like that there is no other way to feed children, that you have to constantly bribe them. In other words, you realize that everyone in power was right all along. <laughs> um, that to me <laughs> is like these Republican radicals who sit from the back benches, like, you know, um, doing their Instagram stories with Matt Gates and uh, just generally like, I guess, running to be the president of a podcast rather than a legislator. And they're like, well, we would never cave to Joe Biden and the Democrats. You know, like, we're going to shut the government down. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. You know, like, we're going to just, like, wave a magic wand and get them to, like, eliminate Social Security. Um, we're going to do all these incredible things if only we could just get someone like us in power. And guess what? They did get someone like them in power. They got one of the most radical people in Congress. Um, and he got inside the leadership room. And, like, 10 days later, he's singing the exact same tune that Kevin McCarthy was singing. Um, and that and that Paul Ryan was singing before him and that John Boehner was singing before him. Uh, you, you sit in that in the speaker's chair and you realize. You cannot make legislation and policy by fiat when you don't control the White House or the Senate. <laughs> like It's just there's a very simple political reality, right, that when he was I mean, this dude was a backbencher like three, three weeks ago, right, completely unknown, obscure person from Louisiana. Suddenly he and his radicalism are elevated to Speaker of the House, and he's doing the exact same thing that all the terrible rhino cucks were doing <laughs> like a month ago. Um, and it's like, it's just an incredible thing to behold um, when someone who has been bellyaching about like what the leadership is doing for, for years and years and years becomes the leadership and realizes that there's no other way. Um, and so I've just personally been enjoying... <laughs> the aftermath of this because you know i feel well, like 93 republicans voted against this or something um and uh i'm i'm really enjoying i'm having some schadenfreude like in the reporting about it because they're going around to all the house radicals and they're like hey isn't this why you deposed mccarthy and they're like well <laughs> yeah, he's new with this you know like well we're not gonna get anybody more conservative than mike johnson in that chair and it's like 
use your noodles, folks. You know what I mean? Like there's some things that you can't do unless you win the Senate and the White House. Okay. You don't hold those institutions right now. And so you can't just like dictate a, a budget to Joe Biden and expect that's going to work. Um, and uh, watching them all, like watching the realization slowly dawn on all of them that they will achieve absolutely nothing in the next year. <laughs> it's been very satisfying. Well, it is. It's just something reassuring about it, I suppose, on one level. Uh, and, uh, well, of course, let's see what we're saying in February. Again, this is just a postponement until, uh, February, but I'll take it because, uh, well, I'll be flying out of town uh, for a family. I have a very pragmatic guy, you know, it's just, yeah. it's all about me. Okay. So, well, at least they won't shut down the airports, you know, because the federal, uh, employees who operate airports and, uh, air traffic controllers, et cetera, and so forth will be working. Uh, I just want to say something before we move on uh, for the record. Uh, if you ask me whether I would prefer mozzarella sticks and chicken McNuggets to kale, no way. No question. That's a no. Give me the mozzarella <laughs> sticks right now. <laughs> I'm with the kid. All right. So if you're feeding your kid right now mozzarella sticks and uh, chicken McNuggets, I'm saying that's good parenting. <laughs> that's excellent parenting. Okay. All right. Um, so. A lot to uh, discuss based on your last uh, few uh, articles or your essays. Uh, and um, there's two essential points. Uh, and it's just uh, they come out of something you just said. You said you can't do your radical agenda unless you control the Congress, the Senate and uh, the White House. Well, there were some polls and you wrote about them. Uh, our dear friend, Nate Cohn, uh, back up to his old tricks. Uh, for the New York Times had uh, freaked the hell out of uh, baby boomer liberals uh, with <laughs> they all immediately crawled into their favorite position, the fetal position. Uh, baby boomer liberals. I'm so scared uh, with a dire polls out of swing states uh, showing Trump trouncing uh, Biden. So there's the White House uh, and I get messages all the time, as do all the uh, baby boomer liberals. Uh, from Democratic uh, strategists trying to get us to kick in money to various Senate campaigns saying, we're behind in Ohio. We're behind in, you know, pick a state they're behind in. Uh, so that means, oh, the Republicans could take all three. We could be Senate, House, and uh, White House. A year from now could be uh, Republican control. Uh, which leads to Trump's promises, which you also wrote about, his pledge, what he's going to do if he gets power again. So um, I suppose uh, since one is contingent on the other, uh, if fear of Trump will drive a lot of people to the polls. Let's do the fear part first. So you wrote an excellent essay. Uh, I think it was in Newsweek. I get, I get them mixed up sometimes, but I think this was the Newsweek one uh, where you t you went through Trump's recent promises uh it's pretty scary stuff why don't you uh take a deep dive in that sure um this is a story that i think people are finally starting to pay attention to i mean the the institutions of the right um like right-wing think tanks and advocacy groups and uh, like the people who are out of power right now uh are plotting what they're going to do when they get back into power and that's actually that's totally normal right um when your party loses the White House, a lot of the senior officials and the political appointees, they like 
well, they either take lobbying jobs and get rich <laughs> or they go to these think tanks um, and, and work on various policies and white papers and, and ways of maintaining opposition to the president. Uh, kind of just like next time you get into power, we're going to have a bunch of ideas ready to roll. Right. Like um, between 2016 and 2018, um, Democratic leadership in conjunction um, with their most important sort of intellectual um, machines like Center for American Progress and stuff like that. Um, they put together the like, you know, the for the people agenda, like H.R. 1, right, like the the institutional reform agenda, um, different Democratic plans for uh, for healthcare and immigration and foreign policy. Um, and they had not, don't get me wrong, not that a lot of this stuff actually got done, right? But when Biden got into power, they had a set of things that they wanted to do, okay? Um, and I think the Trump people realized um, that when they first got into power, they didn't have this. Um, they just had Donald Trump's like half-baked, like unformed uh, ideas about how to make other human beings suffer, but they didn't know how to actually put it into practice. Um, because no one in right wing Thinklandia wanted to work with them. Like if you think back to 2015, 2016, almost the entire Republican establishment was opposed to Trump, um, did not help him put together a transition plan, didn't think he was going to win, um, didn't have coherent policy ideas, didn't have like lawyers who understood how to wield power in the executive branch. Um, it was just like a comical uh, sort of on the fly operation that happened to fluke into victory. And this time, that's not what's happening. They have this thing out there. It's called Project 2025. Um, and a bunch of affiliated, like, right-wing weirdos um, <laughs> and the former president himself have put together a policy agenda. Um, there is a website for it. Um, and I, I urge you to take a look at it because it is really, really scary. Um, so basically... When Donald Trump is elected, if Donald Trump is elected, God help us all, um, he has a bunch of things that he wants to do, right? One of them involves like immediate direct revenge um, on the politicians and institutions that have been tormenting him since 2016. Okay? Um, he's going to put a loyalist in charge of the DOJ. He's going to order uh, investigations of his opponents, uh, his political opponents. Um, he's going to knock down any remaining barriers between the DOJ and the president. Um, you know, I used to refer to like my generals and my attorney general, like that stuff's going to become reality, right? Um, he wants to be able to, uh, you know, there's a small percentage of jobs in the federal government that are, um, that are what we call political appointees. Um, and those people can be fired and are fired <laughs> in between administrations when there's a party changeover. But the vast, vast, vast majority of people who work in the federal bureaucracy um, have protections against being fired for political reasons. Okay. Trump wants to do away with all of that. Uh, he wants to just kind of clean house the executive branch. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people here. I don't know who he's going to get to take these jobs, right? <laughs> but like, he'll fire a lot of people who are, you know, they're like, we got to clear out the deep state. I'm sure at this point, some of your listeners are like, whatever, you know, <laughs> like, I, don't think, I don't think a lot of people outside of political circles really care who works for the federal government, right? And I, I understand why that is, but it is really dangerous. Um, but he has a bunch of policy ideas too. Like, uh, I'll give you one example. Um, Project 2025 calls for the forced rounding up of unhoused people from our cities and installing them in what they call tent cities on, in, and I quote, inexpensive parcels of land 
um, where they will be get the medical and mental help that they need um, whilst they're maintained against their will in, in tents uh, outside of the cities. Um, so that's, uh, you know, that's that's one example of what they want to do. They want to ban gender affirming care across the whole country. Um, there will be like a like, I don't know where Trump himself is on this stuff. Right. But there will be a federal abortion ban um, if they take both branches of government. Um, and uh, the most to me, the most concerning thing that I have read um, about Project 2025 and in Project 2025 is about the Trump administration's fixation on using the Insurrection Act to put down revolt if he's elected again. If you think back to January 2021, um, before January 6th, um, Trump tried to install this guy, Jeffrey Clark, as the head of DOJ, as his attorney general. And the reason that he wanted to install Clark was because um, while they were disrupting the electoral vote count and delaying it, Trump was planning to deploy... Um, the military as part of the Insurrection Act to put down protesters. And they are already anticipating protests following Trump's election, you know, whether he's elected legitimately or I don't know, something else happens, but they're anticipating protests that they are like salivating. They're like salivating to murder Democrats and dissidents in the streets after, after election day, 2025. They have a plan in place to declare martial law effectively, declare the protesters insurrectionists and kill them. Um, and they're like completely unapologetic about this. Um, you know, I, I try not to get engaged in flights of fancy and, and like, you know, visions of tanks rolling down, um, you know, Massachusetts Avenue and, and, and D.C. But there's really no other way to look at, at what they're plotting other than that, like, this will be the last election that we ever have because they are going to kill the opposition. Um, if the opposition decides they need to leave their houses, even for peaceful protests. So uh, some really good stuff there, Ben. Can't wait for the next election to be decided by, um, <laughs> by uh, you know, 50 Arizona, Boston, Michigan, Georgia, yeah. Wisconsin. <laughs> All right. Uh, really so, uh, yes, it's dystopia. Uh, it's frightening. Uh, and if we've learned one thing about Donald Trump, uh, you should listen to what he says because he generally tries to implement what he says. Uh, he showed that to us. Uh, and um, I know at this moment in time, I said this to you before we were on the mic, I think, a lot of people in uh, lefty land uh, are so outraged at uh, Biden for embracing Netanyahu uh, at the start of the uh, the war against um, Hamas, that they the pledged they're not going to vote for Biden. That's it. They're not going to vote for Biden. And in general, David, I spent a lot of time in lefty land. Uh, it, so many lefties I know, their greatest animus is toward what I call liberals. They have a greater animus toward liberals than they do to fascists. Uh, and it's I think it's because they're all kind of part of the same family and they're fighting. And it's just it's it, they're fighting who they know. They don't really hang out with MAGA fascists. So it's like, ah, you know, that's just Trump being Trump. So those are the like that's there's a lot of people I know like that. Um so that is the fear that um, there will be a desertion 
of uh, Biden, presuming that he is the nominee, uh, and that will enable Trump to roll uh, to victory uh, and then put out his the fascist state, which is exactly what you're talking about. Um, and um, this gets to the predictions, Nate Cohen's predictions in the New York Times. Uh, personally, this is me speaking on David. I don't trust Nate Cohen. I view him. It's kind of funny. I think he's a guy in search of hits. So everything he does, in my opinion, this is me, not David. Uh, in my opinion, everything, it's almost like a, a parody of himself, is designed to, to put baby boomer liberals in a fetal position. And so they'll click <laughs> constantly. <laughs> give me, come on. They're, they're looking for Nate to give them something to believe in so they're not scared anymore. And he's kind of getting good at it. You know, he, he'll throw out a little like, well, this poll, if you read the the fine print, you can see there's some hope for Biden. You know what I'm saying? But mostly it's just to get clicks by scary people. So take apart the polls that uh, show Trump being triumphant in all the swing states that Nate Cohen's pr uh, promoting these days from the perspective of Donald Trump's dystopia. Like if the electorate in this country puts its mind on what Donald Trump says he wants to do, the impact that it could have. Because you wrote about this to some degree in uh, in Slate, I think it was. So take it away. Sure. Um, when I think about Nate Cohn, I think about, you know, there's this horror movie trope. Um, it's like the plot of like 15 different horror movies. And it's like, there's like a being or a demon um, <laughs> in it. I think this is the plot of It, right? Um, it senses your greatest fears and yes, then it like it. transmits yeah. them to you to scare the crap out of you. Um, and I feel like Nate Cohn's greatest talent is knowing what the readership of the New York Times' greatest fear is <laughs> and then giving them a poll that confirms it. Yes, <laughs> that is so true. He's the guy in the sewer in it. Yeah, okay. basically the, he's basically the sewer clown. Sorry, Nate, if you're listening to this, I'm sure. Very nice <laughs> he's a big listener of your shows, I'm sure. <laughs> Go ahead. So, <laughs> Nate Cohn, the sewer clown, uh, is, is scaring us again. Um, and, I, you know, look, man, I don't think he's, like, making up the data or anything, right? Like, I, I mean, I think that they run these polls. Um, they get the results that they get, and they and they tell us about them. But I, I think that there are some things going on under the hood in these polls that I find, at best, deeply implausible. Um, and at worst, like, I, I feel like they are not correcting for bad samples. So, um and the, where, where it has always stood out to me, and, and this has been a theme of New York Times Siena polls, actually going back quite a ways, um, is that they have like very implausible numbers for demographic subgroups. Okay, um, The two that jumped out to me in this poll, remember, this was a poll just of battleground states, right? Six battleground states, um, you know, you, you know, the ones, right? Like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, Georgia, um, that, that kind of thing, right? Just the states we need to win, Ben. No big deal. Yes. <laughs> uh, the states on which democracy hinges, okay? Yeah, just those right, states. Right. Go ahead. Like the I-95 to fascism runs directly through these six states. It's all fine. Don't worry about it. And um, so it has it has young people, like voters under the age of 30, um, going for, I think it's for Biden by one point um, or by Trump by one point. I can't, I can't remember. Either way, it's like, give me a break here. Um, it has black voters giving Trump 23% of the vote. It has Hispanic or Latino voters, whatever term we're using, giving Trump 42% of the vote. Um, 
these would all represent just the most dramatic and consequential demographic shifts between elections that we have ever seen in the history of polling. Um, it would be just an earthquake. If those are the numbers, like if those are the demographic numbers, if Trump, if, if Trump wins young people by a point or two points or half a point, or only you loses young people by two or three or four points, it's not even going to be this close, <laughs> right? Like Trump will walk to victory um, in, a, in a cakewalk. There won't be a disputed election. There won't be an electoral, electoral college misfire. He's just going to win. Um, and the reason that I'm suspicious of these numbers, again, is not because I think Nate Cohn is making them up, right? What makes me suspicious about these numbers is the um, the degree of change, not just between presidential elections, but like we had elections last year and we just had elections last week, right? Like, um, a, like a year ago in the November 2022 midterm elections um, in which Republicans won the national vote for um, for the House by a couple of points. Um, Joe Biden won young people by like 25 points. His margins with, with black and Latino voters were like virtually unchanged from 2020. Okay. Um, and so it's not just like, oh, wow, this big shift happened in four years, maybe. It's like they're telling us these are shifts that happened in the last 11 months since the midterm elections. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, well, what, what happened in the last 11 months that would have driven these demographic groups so far away from Joe Biden and, and the Democrats? And I just don't see anything. Okay, like I just don't see a coherent sort of like cause and effect pattern that would explain why Biden is sudden, like why Trump is suddenly appealing to young people. Right? Like he, he certainly hasn't changed his tune on anything in a way that would make a like somebody that's like a climate change activist be like, you know what? Maybe the orange guy is fine. Let's roll with that. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think yeah. that these polls are real, but I think that they're a snapshot in time. Um, when I think the Democratic base is maybe a little bit demoralized, right? It's been a year since the midterms. It's been a year of Republican control of the House. Not, like nothing positive is happening. It's just these budget standoffs and the Israel-Palestine war and um, kind of nothing for anyone in our coalition to get particularly excited about. It's just like once the Republicans won the House, we're, we're just fighting this rearguard battle to just preserve what we already have um, until we take another shot at a trifecta. Um, and so you can you can understand why people might not be that excited to vote for Democrats right now, um, but the idea that they're going to shift like en masse to the Republicans, I just I, I, I'm sorry, I just don't think it's plausible. Um, and I don't say that because I want people to be complacent. Like Trump could win, right? Trump almost won with the with the margins with those groups that we had. Right. Like Biden won young people by 30 points. He won he won black voters by like 80 points. And Trump still almost won. Right. I, I don't think it's necessary to, to like pretend that there's going to be a massive demographic shift between 2022 and 2024. To tell our own coalition, our own voters, like there's a real threat out there. He could squeak by, um, you know, stop messing around. Right? Like we, we need to start fighting this election now. Um, but yeah, the idea that Trump is going to win those kind of numbers, I, like I would bet my house that Trump's not going to win young people. Okay. <laughs> like I really would. So I'm not going to do that. I think I, obviously the greater concern is that, and I think you stated this last time that the young people don't vote or black people don't vote or Hispanic people don't vote or lefties don't vote 
uh, for Biden. They just they don't vote for Trump, but either they just don't vote or they vote for a third party. Uh, yeah, very few, I think. Uh, there may be a few nihilists out there who vote for Trump, uh, but just the act of rage. Um, you want insanity? I'll give you insanity. Uh, but uh, there's always, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of people in the world. So you, you get what I'm saying? Uh, that's another thing that these polls do. They find these voters. I mean, God help everybody's everybody's voice is precious. Uh, and so they'll find some guy. I'm voting for Trump because I'm just so mad at Biden. Fill in the blanks. I don't agree with Trump on anything. I'm a lifelong Democrat. They always find a lot. I'm a lifelong Democrat, but this time I'm voting for Trump. Like, where do you find this guy? You know what I mean? And then they just prop him up. And But your point is a good one. So if all these baby boomers I know, and I know a ton of them who are in the fetal position right now are crying and whining and clutching their their blankets, uh, if this fires them up uh, to do something, then Nate Cohen, you have done a service to our country. So I will give you an award. Uh, and uh, But I, 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 it's funny, David, I'm thinking about this when you were talking. These same baby boomers who are in the fetal position clutching their blankets, they were doing the same thing in 2019. I remember having conversations with the same people at like these little gatherings. Ben, it's all over. It's absolutely Trump's gonna win. And I and I tell them, I go, you know, you said the same thing four years four years ago. And then they go, This is a classic baby boomer response. Well, that was different. <laughs> what? <laughs> it, what? How is it any that was different, Ben? Okay. Don't throw things at me that make you challenge me. All right, let's break down some of the issues that you talk about um, that uh, uh, work for the Democratic favor, I, Democrats' favor. We could just take off the top Joe Biden. Nobody's showing up or very few people show up because they love Joe Biden. In fact, my advice to Joe Biden is don't even campaign. Just stay in the White House. You don't have to debate anybody. Trump broke the rules with debates. There's no need to debate. We don't have to sit through that horse. <laughs> uh, but, but there's, as I see it, uh, three. One is abortion. Uh, two is the persistence of election denial and the reminder of uh, January 6th. Uh, and then the third one is the one you uh, began with, uh, Trump extremism uh, and his pledge to bring in a dystopia. Uh, and um, so those are the big three. If you can think of any others, uh, you can add them. But let's take them up uh, issue by issue, and we'll start with uh, abortion. Uh, that was that was in play just last week uh, with the mid mid term elections. So your thoughts on abortion as an issue going into twenty twenty four? Sure. Um, the Republican Party is in a state of panic about abortion politics right now. Um, you can see it in the in the post election um, recriminations that are that are happening on the right right now. Um, I always know it's a good day when I like load up the National Review, which is a right wing website, um, and everybody's like sad talking about how they lost again. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just a reminder, um, the off year elections that happened last week were like a catastrophe for the Republican Party. Okay. They lost, uh, you know, the Democratic governor of Kentucky was was reelected. Um, Democrats captured both houses of the Virginia legislature. Um, Democrats expanded their margins in New Jersey. Um, Democrats came like fairly close to winning the governorship of Mississippi. 
Um, and uh, probably the biggest sort of most consequential election of the night was in Ohio, um, where voters uh, approved a constitutional amendment to effectively embed, embed reproductive rights into the Ohio Constitution. Right? And it was not a squeaker, right? Like that, that amendment passed by 13 points. Um, in other words, uh, reproductive rights uh, in some capacity have a, have a very strong majority in Ohio, which is a, a quite a Republican state at this point, probably has like an eight point Republican lean. Um, and it was just the latest in a long string of referenda and elections that are fought about abortion and the Democrats win going away. Um, in other words, Democrats are like seven and zero oh at this point, uh, post Dobbs, <clears throat> when, when abortion is directly on the ballot in front of voters. Um, and so the politics of this are crystal clear. Right. Like Glenn Youngkin, who is the Republican governor of Virginia, who is another one of these like Bruce Rauner accidental governor situations where like Democrats in a blue state just like fall asleep um, in, a, in an off year election and allow a Republican to sneak into office who like then wreaks havoc for four years and then loses. Um, you, know, you, you can't serve two consecutive terms in Virginia, so Youngkin couldn't run for reelection, but he was being talked about as like a dark horse presidential candidate who would parachute in at the last minute and be like, not you, Nikki Haley, like not you, Ron DeSantis, not you, Chris Christie, it's me, Glenn Youngkin, right? I can win Virginia, like vote for me, America. Um, and then he just like, his his forces just got hosed in Virginia, coughed up the Virginia House of Delegates um, and Democrats held their Senate majority. It wasn't like a tsunami or anything, right? But like, we won. Um, and Youngkin was out there being like, um, we can't be too extreme about this. Let's ban abortion. Let's ban abortion. Words ban abortion at 15 weeks. That's a reasonable compromise. And in fact, like if you look at public opinion data, people are open to that. Okay. But it seems like in our politics, I don't get me wrong, Ben, I'm not in favor of that. Okay. But I think the like median public opinion would be like 15 weeks. That's like what 14 months. People can't do math, right? They're like 15 weeks. <laughs> people so, doing the math. Yeah, it's, so it's like, who doesn't know they're pregnant at 15 weeks? So ban it. You know, yeah. but like when push comes to shove, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all people seem to be hearing is abortion ban. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like the few Republican politicians who are out there being like, this is like, I think this is hurting us. Like, could we be a little bit more moderate on this? are getting drowned out um, by the 21 states where there is like near total or total bans on abortion, where like people are voting based on their expectations of what Republican power would actually do and not based on what the three or four Republican politicians in America, including Nikki Haley, who are like, you know, like, do we really need heartbeat laws? Like, is this just a little bit extreme? I mean, I'm not going to stop you, <laughs> but isn't just like a little bit extreme. Can we, can we dial it back a little bit? People are not hearing that message. What they're hearing is like total ban, no exceptions. Um, this is the lay of the land. And this is what Republicans want to do if they get a trifecta in Washington. Okay. Um, and this, but the fact that Glenn Youngkin couldn't thread that needle, nobody believed him. And if they did believe him, they didn't want what he was selling has to just absolutely strike fear into the heart of every Republican strategist in America. Um, because the polls did not look this bad for Republicans before election night. It's another night like 2022 um, where it's like, like a red wave did not materialize. Right? Like that red wave, I think, was more of a, a media narrative than it was based on an objective reading of the polling. Um, but certainly Republicans expected to have a much better night on last Tuesday than they did. Um, 
And so that's just this huge um, tailwinds for Democrats heading into next election, knowing that they're on the right side of this like really huge, important issue um, that virtually everyone in America could see affecting them in some way, shape or form. Um, and all they have to do is campaign on it and get it right. Um, and, and, the, and they should, you know, it should help. Well, it should just help think about what you said. And, and uh, like someone says abortion bad, that's all you hear. That's all. And, um, uh, and then, then you get into the, like people, that's all you hear. That's literally, and then you, you, then you go, well, what about if it's rape or what about if it's incest? Sorry, you know, and uh, and even Nikki Haley, which is such a her her position. I I've, I follow, ladies and gentlemen, a confession. I actually follow the rhetoric coming out of the Republicans. Just out of curiosity, I know you rest. Let rest of you guys aren't doing it, but I'm doing it for you. And so is David Ferris. So Nikki Haley, I've watched her. She's not like taking a strong stand against an abortion ban. What she literally says is, I don't want to vilify women. Can we not demonize women? How is that reassuring to anybody? You're not going to stand up to the extremists in your party who want abortion bans, except to say, oh, can't we all just get along while I ban this this procedure that you want? So I don't see that really going anywhere either, uh, David. Every time she starts talking about, can we just, can we just lower the rhetoric a little bit? Well, you're the one, you're the guys who raised the rhetoric. Um, so yeah, I could see why. Now, what I don't know, and I'll put you, ask you about this, is so those votes in Ohio, and the I think uh, th- those are votes that uh, enshrine abortion uh, as a right in the state of Ohio. The Republicans already trying to undo it, by the way, David. Uh, uh, so how does that translate into a national election where presumably the Republican nominee, since Mike Pence is out of the race, uh, will be someone who says, I'm leaving it up to the states, individual states. And so I personally be against abortion. I personally would not oppose uh, a ban, but I'm leaving it up to the states. So how if, if you have a Republican nominee saying that that's their position? How do you think it plays uh, in a national election in a state like Ohio? I don't think it's going to cut it for Republicans, honestly. Um, I, there's a couple of problems with the leave it to the states rhetoric, right? One is when push comes to shove, Republicans don't actually want to leave it to the states. Right? I mean, like there's a lot of prominent Republican, Republican politicians, including the Speaker of the House of Representatives, who want to ban abortion at the federal level. Okay, so you're gonna have to work around Mike Johnson, your own speaker. I <laughs> I don't know what the odds are that this dude will still be speaker of the house in a year. Probably pretty <laughs> low, right? But like he's not gonna be replaced by like um, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg or something. And I mean it's gonna be another abortion banner. Um so that's one problem, right? One problem is that you have a you have a number of prominent Republican politicians who want abortion banned with no exceptions, right? You have the Republican primary electorate, which wants Republican, which wants, which wants abortion ban without exceptions. Um, and most problematically, I think, is you have a number of swing states um, that, you, that Joe Biden either won or was competitive in that have also banned abortion. Right. So the states where, again, the road to 270 is going to run through these states, there are there are multiple swing states where you can't get an abortion right now. Right. North Carolina 
Georgia, Wisconsin, Arizona. Like that, that takes you, you, you know, take the states that are not competitive, add them, and that's 270 in the Electoral College. Okay. So the, the swing state voters, if you tell them, let's leave it up to the states, um, and, you, and, you're, and you're stipulating the assumption you need to win these four states to become president, you have left it up to the states, and the states have banned abortion in places where the electorate does not support it. Right. And so I don't think a message of leave it to the states is going to cut it here. I don't think it's going to cut it for Ron DeSantis. I don't think it's going to cut it for Donald Trump, even, who uh, it's just this is one of those mind blowing things where it's like Trump is more moderate, I guess, in theory um, than the rest of the party. Although he is the idiot who appointed the three people who just, you know what I mean? People are like, well, Donald Trump's in the sweet spot for abortion. I'm like, no, he's not. <laughs> it's, not it's like Amy Coney Barrett, his fault. He appointed her. You know, he can't run from this record. He cannot run from this record. People are not idiots, right? Like they know who is responsible for the state of reproductive rights politics in this country. Okay. And it, and it's, and it's like, it's not Ronald Reagan. You know, it's, it's the last Republican president who appointed the Supreme court people who overturned Roe v. Wade. Um, and then the leave it to the state stuff also runs headlong into the fact that like places where the voters have weighed in and said, don't ban abortion here, Republicans immediately get to work the next day trying to circumvent them. Um, in the same way, like, remember, like, uh, Florida restored um, voting rights for formerly uh, uh, incarcerated people? And, like, literally the next day, the Florida legislature was like, well, only if they pay a giant fine first, and then no one had their rights restored. Um, it's like there's such contempt for the voters that even in places where, like, Republican-leaning electorates are like, do this thing, the Republicans in office are like, what if we did this other thing instead um, that was the direct opposite of what the majority just said in this election? So when you combine the contempt for the, contempt for the people, um, the lack of interest in finding common ground um, with, uh, with people who are appalled by what's happening, um, and the fact that there are too many swing states already that have banned abortion, this is a nightmare for Republicans. All right, wait, by the way, what were the, you named them, and I just wanted to, uh, I missed the last two, you said North Carolina, what were the four states, four swing states, uh, North Carolina, Georgia, and what were the other two? Arizona um, and Wisconsin, um, because Wisconsin had that um, trigger law, right? And it's like, um, yeah, it's it, am I right about this, or do I need to look this up? <laughs> uh, well, uh, someone will write us a letter or send me a text. Uh, which I always love, so let's just let it go. <laughs> uh, they no, I get. Uh, I should tell you this: I have um, a legion of uh, really smart listeners who let me know when one of my guests gets something wrong, or I uh, overlook when my guests get something wrong. So uh, you're, I know you guys are out there. You know your politics. Oh, okay. Uh, I think I know what happened here, Ben. As I think when Democrats got the Wisconsin Supreme Court back. Uh, I think abortion is legal in Wisconsin again, I guess. <laughs> a, I, I, I don't know if they've ruled on that yet. Um, and it's been a while since I've looked. So I'm just going to stay out of this one because I hate saying things where I'm wrong. Uh, but uh, yeah, abortions have resumed in Wisconsin. So okay. I think there's still a lot of uncertainty about it. Um, but in but in September, um, you know, uh things things changed there so no it's it's a it's a big issue in wisconsin because immediately the republicans uh moved to impeach the newly elected 
uh, a Democratic um, Supreme Court ju- justice. So it is a huge issue in the state of Wisconsin. There's no doubt about it and remains one and will remain one. Uh, that's a state that's probably more Democratic than the reality of its its legislature in re- large degree because of gerrymandering. That's right. back about 10 years. All right. Uh, and then the other issue is election denialism. And uh, you pointed this out in your essay. Uh, Donald Trump has essentially uh, forced the Republican Party to bend to his deranged view of what went down in 2020, which is uh, his rewriting of of history. Uh, And to elect Donald Trump president again, a majority of voters in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin are going to have to say the attempted coup does not matter to me. And I don't know. That's that's a big ask. Your thoughts about this? It, it is a big ask. Um, and, and that's why I would say, again, as much as I don't want Joe Biden to be the nominee, um, that we, we have to take some of this polling with a grain of salt because it's like the issues have not yet been clarified for people, right? Like, I, I can't emphasize this enough. Most people are not paying attention to politics right now. Um, and when people tune back in, which is, which is what happens in the United States is that like that subset of voters who are like, pay casual attention to politics, like every once in a while, um, and start tuning in when the primaries are happening. And then after the conventions, <clears throat> they're going to take a look at what Donald Trump is promising to do. And I don't think they're going to like it. Right. Like, I think that the, I think that Donald Trump's candidacy, I think that the possibility of Donald Trump becoming president again is at this point such a theoretical possibility to people um, that they are not focusing on the actual fallout of what Donald Trump would do and what it would mean for the country to put this like horrendous, uh, uh, vengeful sociopath back into, back into power. I don't think they're thinking it through. I think what's happening right now, a year out from the election, is that people are talking to pollsters based on their frustrations with the people in power. And there are a lot of them. Okay? Um, it's, it's not just about Israel-Palestine. It's about, it's a, to me, I think it's mostly about prices and interest rates that is causing the country's sour mood. Um, and I'll just, like, political science, a lot of work in my discipline about the relationship between unemployment numbers and election results. Right? Um, and so I think there's a very good chance that people are simply going to come around on the economy um, take a look at Donald Trump and be like, dude, we cannot do this. You know, like, I wish that we were not running, um, you know, a, a, a fragile 82-year-old man <laughs> as our nominee and our president. I really wish this was something different, but I'm not going to vote for Trump, you know. Um, but I do think that Biden needs to get serious. Like, I think that the Biden administration needs to stop, like, huffing paint from a can about the economy. <laughs> Um, yeah. And just, and they're like, greatest economy. We're like, we added all like incredible record number of jobs added since 2021. And it's like, dude, you know, can we stop with this sophistry? <laughs> like, like the country lost like tens of millions of jobs during the pandemic. And yes, a lot of them have come back under Biden. Um, and that's great, right? Like, don't get me wrong. I'm glad that we have 4% rather than 10% unemployment. Um, cause Biden would absolutely be toast <laughs> if that was the case. But, um, if you think about what, what like the economic situation of ordinary people, 
since 2020, a lot of people are worse off. Some people are better off, right? Um, in some ways, like the average net worth of a household has gone up, okay? Um, but if you are somebody like, and this is why I think young people are sour too. I don't think it's just Israel. Um, if you want to buy a house, if you want to buy a car, um, anything that you need to take, you, know, you take a loan out to pay for, that in the good old days since the Great Recession, uh, banks have effectively just been giving out free money. Um, you know, like whenever whenever Ford calls about my car and they want to buy it back, they're like, what was the interest rate you got on this car? I was like, 0%. Yeah. Everybody had 0% interest. Right. <laughs> That's incredible. What a time to be alive. Yeah. Um, and now it's like uh, to buy a house, like you can only afford like half of the house you could afford four years ago because of the interest rates. People aren't buying houses. Um, it's much harder to buy a car. Um, and the, the rate of inflation, you know, the cost of living is up like 16% since 2020. And some people have gotten rage, uh, wage raises, but some people haven't. Um, and so that's a, to me, that is like Joe Biden's biggest issue. Um, isn't, isn't like Israel. It's not like not delivering on the climate. It's just, it's just prices and interest rates. Um, and he cannot wave a magic wand and return prices to 2019, nor would he want to because deflation is widely regarded as a, as a catastrophe by economists. Um, but he can talk about it. He can, he can do some things to try to bring prices down around the margins in certain sectors. More importantly, he needs to lean on the Fed to lower the interest rates. Like, if I could say there's one thing that Joe Biden could do to make his election more likely, re-election more likely, lower the interest rates, okay? Um, I just, I can't emphasize enough, like the difference between 8% interest and 1% interest on a loan is like hundreds of dollars a month for ordinary people. Um, and just by doing that one thing, he can't do it himself. That's the trick, right? Um, but he needs, he needs to lean on the Fed, right? Remember when Trump was threatening to, to fire Jerome Powell? Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, but like all the, all the, all the liberals were like, well, we can't do that. You know, like that would, <laughs> that would violate norms and the dreaded norms. We can't violate those norms. And it's like, I don't care how many norms you have to violate. People need to think that Joe Biden wants the interest rates to be lower, not where they are. Because what it looks like right now is like Biden was desperate to get inflation under control. Was like, sure, jack up the interest rates. That'll bring inflation down. It did. Congratulations. It worked. But it didn't return prices to 2020. And you now have the you have a different problem that that um, borrowing money is hugely expensive. Just get on the right side of that, right? Um, get Powell in a room and be like, "My dude, <laughs> I don't care what the courts would say about firing you. I'm going to fire you. Cut the interest rates in half, like in the summer of 2024. Cut them in half, like the week of the DNC. <laughs> Lower the interest rates, and then watch the magic happen." Um, because people will then look at the economy and be like, oh, wow, so unemployment's really low. Um, and uh, and I can buy that giant truck to terrify my neighbors <laughs> and, and kill their children. Zero um, interest. So, <laughs> yeah. Right. All right. Easy peasy. So uh, I'm going to close with another curveball. And uh, this will help me write a column I got in mind. So I'm going to steal your ideas. and I'm going to be unapologetic when I do it. Um, so this uh, this falls under the category of the cult of Rom. 
from former Mayor Rahm Emanuel, who uh, has moved on to bigger and better things. They got him out of the country, sent him to Japan to be the ambassador, to which a uh, a very relieved city of Chicago says, thank you, Joe Biden. Uh, and uh, But every now and then, a, a national journalist writes like this love poem to Rahm, which is really weird. Uh, I, I presume it's sort of an incestuous relationship where they're feeding him. He's feeding them information and puffing them up and they return it. But the, the latest uh, example, which was sent to me by at least 10 different people, because uh, everybody knows that this is one of my many obsessions, is from a gentleman who I'd never heard of before. I, I apologize. I mean, I heard of him, but I don't know him. Uh, Jonathan Martin is his name. He writes for Politico. Uh, and, uh, he wrote this, I will read this with a straight face and get your response as a concluding, uh, part to this show quote, no ambassador has seemed to remake the role as Biden's envoy envoy to Japan, uh, Rahm Emanuel, yet the best service Ramsan, he really wrote Ramsan can offer Biden isn't using his post in Asia to forge Pacific alliances and taunt the Russians and Chinese. The president should call Emmanuel back stateside and have him chair the reelection. Doing so would demonstrate a willingness by Biden to broaden his inner circle, create a manic urgency in the campaign that is Emmanuel's trademark, and by elevating one of the most ferocious operatives of our times, signal that when Trump goes low, the Democrats will go fucking lower. And I guess he really was really showing, pounded his chest by dropping the F-bomb. And wait, <laughs> in political, way to go, no Johnny <laughs> Martin. All right, I could go on and on, but we'll close with your thoughts on Jonathan Martin's sonnet of love for Rahm Emanuel. Go ahead. Okay, so that would be a great idea if you also had a time machine and could go back to 2004, <laughs> okay? I think Rahm Emanuel would be an incredible campaign manager for the Democratic candidate for president in 2004 or 2000. Um, the fact that Jonathan, like Jonathan Martin just needs to like go for a jog and clear his head, okay? Because the idea that like appointing Rahm Emanuel as like the co-chair of the Democratic re-election effort um, is just, it's one of the silliest things I've heard in a long time. Um, because Rahm Emanuel, like, didn't, he didn't even win his, his own re-election to Chicago mayor by that much the last time around, right? This is a guy who is not beloved by the Democratic base, and it's just part of this, like, um, this, like, Democratic establishment instinct. Like, whenever they're in trouble, they're like, what do we do? Kneecap the left. What do we do? Kneecap the left. Uh, we're having some problems. What should, where, which direction should we punch? Uh, left. Definitely punch left, <laughs> right? Because it's not in the article, because I know, I know this article. It's not in the article, right? Um, but what Jonathan Martin clearly thinks is that what ails the Democratic coalition and what ails President Biden is like some combination of like wokeness and like defund the police. Um, you know, these like uh, culture war bugaboos um, that the that the center left think are like the most important animating issues in politics that time and again on election day, we discover that no one actually cares about these things. Right. Because we have just won or, you know, did much better than we could have expected to do two consecutive national elections in which the right was screaming about cancel culture and woke blah, blah, blah. And the radical left and people went out and voted for Democrats. OK, so I don't know what what Ram is going to bring to the table other than like an animus for the progressive left 
um, that that's not what Joe Biden needs to show right now. Um, Joe Biden has done everything in his power over the last month <laughs> to antagonize the left um, on, on Israel-Palestine stuff. I'm not taking, I don't want to get into the weeds about what he should and shouldn't be doing. And like Gaza, all this stuff is a whole thing for a different day. But the reality is like Joe Biden made a political decision on October 7th, 2023. And that was to like uncritically back Israel and embrace their policies. Okay. And his polling is worse than it was a month ago, just as an objective matter. Um, So the fact that like foul mouth Rahm Emanuel is going to come in and be like, you know, like, get me a Bernie Sanders doll. Let's just beat the crap out of it for the next 12 months, you know? Um, it's just, it's so farcical. Like, the the myth of Rahm Emanuel, political genius. Let me tell you something. If Rahm Emanuel was a political genius, he would not be in Japan right now, right? <laughs> He'd be running for Senate. Um, or he would be uh, on a trajectory to some higher position in the Democratic power, when in fact, he's been exiled, he is so radioactive, he is exiled. So I'm sorry, Jonathan Martin. No, I do not think that Rahm Emanuel will save Joe Biden. <laughs> wow. That's such a good quote. I may actually use it and, and give you credit for it. Uh, I, but, I by know. the way, Ben, I consider stealing my ideas to be homage and not theft. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, man. Uh, you know, someone once told me, you know, all you do is take other people's ideas. <laughs> I go, well, yeah, so <laughs> yeah. you go talk to a bunch of people and listen to what they say, okay? Yeah. Well, they should have protected uh, their ideas then, shouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, they should have. Maybe I got it out of them. Hey, did you ever think of that? Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but that is so true, man, what you just said. If he was such a genius, he wouldn't be ambassador to Japan. And I'll close with this one point I always do. You know, always gets lost in the mix on this this conversation of Rahm as political genius is Chuck Schumer. And I always say this. Rahm, the notion that people like Jonathan Martin and other pundits have that Rahm's a political genius stems from the tremendous self-promotion that Rahm did in 2006 when he was the head of the congressional, uh, I forget what they called it, the Triple C or whatever, they, DC, I don't know. They the got Triple C, yeah. Yeah, uh, Democrats with their weird names. Anyway, he was uh, running uh, the congressional campaigns of Democrats across the country, and the Dems took back the House, okay? And immediately, Rahm uh, all started getting promoted, puffed up as this brilliant genius. What's lost in, this, this, in the conversation is that the Dems also took back the Senate. It, Schumer, who was running things out of the center out of New York, he didn't have a self-relations machine that like Rom, a, a public relations machine that Rom has, David. No one ever says, bring Schumer in. That's what they need. You know, <laughs> I, I'm just saying, man. Yeah, Schumer literally nobody lost. says that. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think Jonathan Martin may have a little crush on, on Rom, man. I'm just throwing that out there. I love Rom, but he's in those spandex. Uh, no, man, weird stuff, weird stuff. Pundits of America, trust me, come to Chicago. Rom, you're right, barely got reelected in 2015, thanks to, um, uh, like the animus of black people toward uh, Hispanics and Barack Obama coming in and campaigning. Uh, that did it, and then he knew he wasn't going to win in 2019, so he got the hell out of town. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go, that's that's the history of Rom. With the left right now, yes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, there you go. That'll get lefties to vote uh, for Joe. <laughs> Let's put Rahm in charge. Yeah. 
We um, need the guy who oh. can't even win one of the biggest democratic cities in America. That's no. the guy. They, they ran, yeah, they ran him out of town. And and, and the, by the way, I applaud you, Chicago. That was your great. I would I would argue there's like that's on my list of top five great moves by the Chicago electorate. There's it's tough to come up with five, David. I've been here since uh, the seventies, one way or another. Uh, but running Ram out of town is definitely on my list. Uh, all right, very good, David Ferris. Thank you so much. Uh, we did not uh, take any kind of deep dive on uh, Israel and Palestine and the war in Gaza. I urge everybody, if you want to hear David Ferris on these subjects, the last two conversations we did, brilliant stuff from David. Uh, and um, so, yeah, you can go hear him and uh, discuss uh, those issues. Uh, it's it's on, it's a couple of weeks ago, a show we did two weeks ago. All right. Thank you very much, David. I appreciate you coming on the show. Always great to be here, Ben. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next time. All right. Excellent. It's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.